Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. It seems as we get closer to seeing the results of the coronavirus vaccine trials, the questions being asked are becoming weirder and darker. The FDA, which for decades has been a champion of science and largely beyond reproach, is now facing a growing crisis concerning its reputation and the potential for political influence in the vaccine approval process. Matt, you and our MedTech Insight colleague, Sean Schmidt, looked at a group of public statements made by current and former government officials detailing the push and pull over kind of who runs the FDA at this point. Yeah, thanks, uh, Derek. Uh, um, you know, uh, institutional trust is going to be a uh, theme of uh, most of what we're going to talk about uh, today. I uh, suspect, even though there's going to be a variety of uh, topics, uh, just given the various uh, tensions on credibility, it's sort of going to uh, um, affect uh, uh, most everything for the FDA uh, going forward. I uh, I fear until uh, um, until the election, at least. So, uh, uh, yeah, Sean and I. Um, uh, as our jumping off point, we looked at this uh, memo that uh, uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar had sent, basically saying that sort of, you know, he is the uh, final uh, and really sort of sole signatory authority for new regulations coming out of the department. And uh, obviously he, you know, has the uh, perfect right to do that. That's for kind of, uh, you know, how uh, um, how he chooses to run the department. And uh, um there's some argument that this, in fact, that's a uh, um, uh, thing that sort of kind of supports the uh, the various agencies, uh, you know, FDA and the other uh, um, other parts of uh, HHS, because it sort of gives them uh, a a stronger bulwark against sort of legal challenge in case there's some uh, effort by uh, an affected entity to say, oh, this reg was improperly issued because it was signed by someone that didn't have her kind of clear signatory authority and. Uh, and so forth, and uh, so that's really the argument that HHS is making about sort of this uh, um, this change that it actually kind of helps uh, helps with the credibility of the uh, um, of the various uh, um, parts of HHS in court. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that that's uh, wrong, but uh, as uh, Commissioner Gottlieb uh, uh, said uh, in his uh, media appearances, this sort of it's a uh, it's terrible timing. This sort of kind of looks like a uh, um, as the New York Times called it in their headline, a power grab, and uh, you know that's not uh, um, that's not what we need this to improve uh, agency credibility. As our uh, colleague and uh, frequent uh, podcast participant uh, Sarah Colin Smith observed earlier this week, that uh, um, you know once you start to uh, lose credibility, people look at your actions in a, in a very different way. They start to sort of kind of see motivation that may not be there um, in what you're doing uh, because they. Uh, um, just look differently at uh, um, at how you're uh, um, how you're behaving, and uh, um, it uh, becomes a real problem. That's where kind of everything uh, now sort of kind of has the uh, potential of being misinterpreted as uh, political interference. Even if uh, um, you know, uh, let's you know, take HHS at their word and say they're actually trying to defend the agency's uh, um, integrity and authority. And it's a, um, I think it's a real problem. Uh, um, you know, if you get uh, um, Scott Gottlieb going on TV and saying that uh, um, you're creating uh, um, a, a worrisome appearance that, uh, you know, it, uh, the memo actually becomes counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, this, 
this just kind of, you know, you're, you're watching this kind of happen in slow motion, so to speak, you know, just because we're, we're paying attention to it day to day. And it, it, it's starting to feel like this, I, I hate to use the phrase runaway train, but it, it's starting to feel like that. You know, you just wonder, you know, like you said, no matter what they do now, someone's going to argue that it's a, you know, a, a, you know, a political, there's a political, uh, angle to this. And, you know, even the president said that, you know, guidance on EU on uh, emergency use authorization for vaccines addition is a, you know, a political move. So I, you know, I, I, I guess, is there, is there a way to kind of stop this and kind of get people to kind of believe in the FDA again? I, I don't know. I think the, uh, the president would have been uh, better served by using his other uh, favorite media play there and calling mm-hmm. the, uh, the new standards fake news because uh, as we reported, even though they're not sort of set out in guidance, they seem to be sort of kind of how FDA has been operating for a while. And I know you've written stories a while ago, sort of kind of uh, outlining what those standards uh, the standards are. So he should have uh, um, he should have kind of uh, perhaps pushed back against the, against the questions as opposed to the agency that would have been uh, more effective there. But again, I'm not the uh, uh, the president's media advisor on uh, um, on that one. So uh, I, you know, I think that's uh, well put. Uh, uh, Derek, that's sort of kind of that, uh, um, you know, I, uh, um, I don't know what the, what can be done at this point, uh, you know, short of, uh, um, you know, some, uh, um, some declaration. I mean, we've, we've heard, uh, Peter Marks, uh, has, uh, reportedly said that, uh, you know, he'll resign if there's a decision that, uh, um, uh, you know, that he is a CBER, uh, um, uh, director doesn't agree with. And, uh, um, you know, we can sort of perhaps take faith in those sorts of, uh, backstops but uh um you know until uh, um there's a perhaps a de- declaration from the people uh, that are uh, um uh you know in uh, in political charge uh, you know sort of kind of alex Azar and uh, uh president trump uh, there that sort of that uh, um you know they will not uh, um uh you know the, the interfering decision that uh, um you know it's going to be a continuous worry yeah i, I also think it's it's interesting here that you know you have so many ex-FDA officials kind of coming out and doing media interviews, and you know, of of course Scott Gottlieb was when he was when he was commissioner was really really took advantage of his platform to be able to to make public statements, and and uh, you know, it did not even before he was commissioner, but. Um, You've seen Rob Califf come out and and do interviews and defend kind of the agency's integrity. You saw uh, Peggy Hamburg come out and defend the agency's integrity and 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 the uh, you know the 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 work of the career staffers there. And uh, it, it I, I just I mean I haven't been doing it as long as 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 you have, Matt. But I don't remember seeing. And granted, we probably haven't had a crisis like this. You know, I don't think ever before. But um, I don't recall seeing having to see all of these ex FDA officials come out and publicly say, you know, publicly defend the, the agency, the way we're seeing it now can almost on a daily basis. I, I think you're right, uh, Derek, obviously the uh, agency has gone through uh, um, many crises, many of them political. I mean, we talked on the podcast uh, last week about uh, the Obama administration, uh, you know, overriding a decision that the uh, um, agency career staff had uh, made on a product approval. So it's not uh, like it's never happened, but uh, the uh, the extent and uh, um, 
efforts. Uh, that was a part B, by the way, folks. If you, if you missed last week, and please go back and listen to it. But there was a, the emergency contraception for those who might be curious about that one. Um, but uh, um, you're uh, um, you're absolutely right that it's a uh, um, that it's a uh, a time that's for kind of uh, you know requires for kind of the uh, um, the broader community to kind of sort of stand behind uh, uh, FDA. You've uh, you've seen the uh, um, the vaccine sponsors put out their letter. Uh, you know, it's a uh, um, it's an interesting uh, state of affairs for sort of kind of the uh, the companies who may sort of kind of have uh, you know perhaps less uh, credibility in the public's uh, mind are uh, um, you know uh, sort of kind of having to sort of kind of uh, provide this bulwark to the agency. I I feel like that letter is sort of kind of more aimed at uh, stakeholders and uh, um, uh, you know sort of politicians and uh, um, and uh, um, you know department leadership uh, perhaps than. Uh, um, than uh, the general public, but uh, um, we will uh, um, we'll see how it uh, how it shakes out. Yeah, sure, and uh, you know, so not to be outdone in terms of concerning FDA related issues, uh, I I got to look into uh, the question that uh, members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee asked uh, vaccine sponsors recently, which was. What they would do if the FDA tried to grant an emergency use authorization for a vaccine without their cooperation. Admittedly, this is a this is far-fetched and self-defeating, as former Principal Deputy Commissioner Josh Sharfstein put it. Uh, but it, it is legally possible, uh, as hard as that is to believe. Uh, there there are questions about who would manufacture the product, whether the data that that uh, you know the data in the application could be used by someone other than the sponsor at the same time it, it was you know scenarios were brought to me where the government could decide to play hardball and kind of try and strong arm somebody into filing an application because they you know they the idea the thinking was well you could they could threaten to go public that they have a vaccine that works and they're not you know they don't want to release it and you know to but you know at the end of the day the question remains if the sponsor said we're not filing an application but the government said we're releasing this product would you really take it i'm you know <laughs> uh, and uh interesting to note that after our story came out on this uh the fda did did tell us that the spot whoever is um uh, if somebody other than the actual sponsor of the vaccine tried to get it approved, they would need some kind of right of reference for the manufacturing and all the other data that would be have to be submitted as part of the application. So it it actually would be very difficult to do. Um, but I'm I'm curious what you got you all think of this. I mean, could you envision a scenario where a, a vaccine could come out, but the sponsor would say we're not filing the application for it? <laughs> Well, I think my uh, uh, capacity to uh, imagine the unimaginable has been uh, long exhausted by the rest of uh, uh, 2020. So, uh, no, I couldn't I couldn't imagine that. But I also uh, no longer believe that uh, um, there's anything that's impossible to uh, um, to happen this year. So, uh, um, uh, you know, it's a very uh, interesting story, uh, Derek. It's uh, um, it's just sort of funny how something that sort of kind of could be a, uh, you know, an interesting uh, uh, law school uh, um, uh, puzzle. Uh, that uh, um, that students work on, uh, you know, was so sensitive that uh, um, FDA didn't uh, didn't get back to you uh, a while b before the uh, 
the story uh, um, the story got published. So uh, um, it's obviously uh, um, you know something that uh, um, that uh, um, not only us but uh, perhaps other uh, um, other stakeholders are uh, you know thinking through the actual possibility of. Yeah, I know that uh, uh, Josh Sharfstein recently when he was talking about you know the this he said he had you know people calling him asking if you know or you know implying that you know trying to figure out if this actually was a scenario that that could that could play out um and you know he had to tell them yes but he said that you know this would this would only be happening like you know some alternate dystopian reality <laughs> that you know no one would want to you know that i can't picture myself living in you know and but you know, again, the, the, in a world where there's, it seems like nothing is off the table anymore. These are the kinds of things we have to think about. Unfortunately, <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, given the uh, the, the uh, congressional hearing, uh, excuse me, hearing earlier this week, uh, you know, where uh, the various health officials testified that they would take the vaccine. I mean, you can sort of, uh, uh, you know, see a scenario where you have to have, you're going to have uh, live broadcast of, uh, you know, Fauci and. Uh, and Han, everybody kind of being uh, being inoculated, as we're kind of to uh, to improve uh, public confidence in it. And you could, uh, um, you know, you know, through kind of regulatory mechanism or uh, you know, uh, slide maneuvers, sort of off the table now. So this, uh, um, well, I don't think this is going to happen. Uh, um, you know, I thought it was a uh, um, an interesting dive into sort of, kind of the uh, the realm of the uh, um, what is now possible. Yeah, I, I I do remember back in my 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 one of my previous uh, newspaper lives have, having to cover the uh, the uh, distribution of flu vaccine, and they actually did the the local health department commissioner did a an event on local TV where she got inoculated, and of course me being the the uh, intrepid reporter asked why she warranted a vaccine over you know, the other, over everyone else who, you know, the, the at-risk groups that, of people that were waiting in line to get one. But uh, yeah, I could totally see uh, when it comes out, someone like, you know, whether it be Tony Fauci or Stephen Hahn actually going on TV and getting, you know, getting inoculated that way. And of course, people asking, why do you get the vaccine over, you know, somebody else? But <laughs> yes, I mean, like you were saying at the first segment, there's sort of FDA's, you know, a now in a no-win scenario, that's for kind of everything they do to kind of sort of to uh, to bolster their uh, um, their reputation can uh, can be seen as seen in the the opposite light. So uh, um, it's a very hard situation for them. Yeah, exactly. Well, finally this week we uh, pay tribute to the late Justice Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a trailblazer and titan of the Supreme Court, who passed away on September 18th. Brenda, you looked at how the new court makeup could affect uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Well, uh, Ginsburg, um, the court is not really divisive on pharma-related issues, and the biggest thing is the ACA and 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 whether that gets overturned this time. Um, there was a close. It was a five-to-four vote um, the last time it went before the court, and the court decided with Roberts' vote that uh, the mandate um, for uh, minimum coverage was constitutional. So th now it, 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 there's a great threat that it will be overturned. In terms of other issues related to pharma, the court's really united on, on one big issue for pharma, the subject matter patentability and um, in, in the cases they've ruled on in the last decade. They, it's been unanimous decisions on that. 
um, the cases where um, that really stand out are the, the preemption cases. And those are five to four rulings. And Ginsburg was in the dissent on whether or not generic manufacturers are shielded or immune from product liability suits. And the court ruled in two cases that they were because they have to follow the labeling of the brand. Um, another case where her vote was really decisive was the FTC versus activists that allowed pay for delay lawsuits to go forward if um, they followed the, the rule of reason, which means that uh, the circumstance of the, each case would be considered in deciding whether or not there was a pay for delay settlement. And in that case, there was it was a five to three ruling, and it would have been it would she was in the dissent. She felt that uh, no, no, she joined the majority. Sorry about that. That might have been a closer case, but Scalia recused on that, and that was that was could be considered a, a case that was. Um, not in pharma's um, benefit, but actually uh, it, it helped them in some ways because each case um, they could they have a chance to show that the deal they they made in a patent settlement agreement really was not violating the antitrust rules. Um, and then she wrote, I could just find two opinions in the last decade that she actually authored, and one was a stock fraud suit involving Amgen, um, in which the court ruled that um, companies could, or plaintiffs could um, claim, they, they didn't have to prove that statements that a, a company made were material at the class certification stage. And in that case, she said Amgen was trying to put the a cart before the horse in, in saying that companies, that plaintiffs had to, to prove that so, so early on. And the other case that she authored was um, involved uh, 340B coverage. And this was beneficial for, for pharma because she said that the um, healthcare entities, uh, hospitals, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't sue companies for overcharging. So those were some of the, the main cases um, that have really impacted pharma. And another one that was 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 beneficial and and this was an eight to two eight to one decision so um, it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a close call but it was really super beneficial for for pharma and 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 Ginsburg was with the majority on this and that was the forum shopping case that limited um, where plaintiffs can bring mass tort suits because um, they were going to courts where they could win and that was a BMS versus um, Superior Court of California case. Well, uh, thank you, Brenda. That's a great uh, rundown of the, uh, you know, the the, the various uh, important uh, Supreme Court decisions that she's been uh, been involved in, uh, um, you know, over the past, uh, um, over her career, and uh, uh, you know, obviously, uh, um, uh, you know, the uh, the next justice will sort of kind of have uh, again this sort of kind of this very sort of a subtle but profound influence on uh, on the pharma business. I mean, we uh, mostly think about the uh, the Supreme Court in terms of the uh, the hot button issues, uh, um, uh, marriage equality, uh, um, you know, abortion rights, uh, those sorts of kind of cultural, cultural war uh, um, uh, things. Not that they sort of don't have a, a real impact on people's uh, uh, people's lives, but uh, um, there's also just this this whole 
sort of you know business ethos that's affected by the Supreme Court and uh, will be influenced by the next uh, um, uh, the next uh, justice, uh, just as uh, Ginsburg sort of kind of applied her influence in those uh, those areas that uh, um, that you mentioned, and uh, you know just like we were talking about at the beginning with uh, you know Alex Azar's effort to sort of kind of consolidate. Uh, uh, you know, signatory authority on rules that sort of as the uh, court becomes more uh, conservative, and it does look like uh, there probably will be a uh, conservative jurist who uh, replaces her at the, at this point. That's sort of kind of that, uh, um, you know, business sort of may, uh, business may find it uh, easier to uh, to challenge FDA's uh, decision making, which, you know, would be a, a good thing. Uh, um, not just FDA, of course, but uh, any federal agency that sort of kind of makes an adverse uh, um Decision will get a lot less deference from a uh, um, a more conservative court, but uh, um, on the other side of the coin, that means that uh, um, you know businesses that perhaps are not uh, um, you know as uh, um, tough as uh, um, as pharma is in terms of sort of making sure that their uh, um, their products meet scientific and uh, um, and uh, you know manufacturing rigor um, could also uh, uh, challenge the agency's uh, decisions in court. Uh, you know we saw this through in that. Uh, um, compounding case uh, um, uh, from years and years ago about uh, how sort of, you know FDA went after that uh, um, uh, that uh, equine pharmacy that had sort of kind of uh, um, inadvertently sort of poisoned all those racehorses and the uh, the pharmacy said that uh, you know the uh, agency didn't really have the authority to go after it and they uh, and they won that set off a whole sort of kind of uh, you know sort of uh, um, ripple effect of uh, um, of problems for the. Uh, um, the agency's power to go after, uh, um, you know, various manufacturing. Uh, um, so, uh, um, you know, we could see more cases like that uh, where it's not just, uh, um, you know, the good pharma actors are getting getting to sort of kind of to uh, smooth out the um, the rough edges and avoid, uh, um, you know, sort of kind of, uh, you know, sharky uh, um, liability lawyers. But, uh, um, you know, there could be a, uh, um, a situation in which, uh, you know, these... Uh, um, you know these 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 stem cell clinics that uh, FDA is very worried about. Uh, you know could uh, you know make their uh, um, their First Amendment uh, um, arguments to the Supreme Court and uh, sort of kind of evade uh, FDA scrutiny uh, um, overall. And that uh, um, that's not necessarily a good thing for the uh, the companies that are uh, you know putting in the rigorous uh, um, uh, and uh, efforts and large amounts of money to uh, um, develop the uh, the appropriate therapies. So uh, um, I. I um, I think that uh, um, obviously uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg is a cultural loss for uh, um, many on the left, and uh, um, obviously a, uh, um, a political one too, given uh, how the court is shifting. But uh, formally, want to think about sort of kind of the uh, um, the long term effects of some of this uh, um, judicial philosophy in terms of sort of, kind of how their uh, their business model may need to change in the face of uh, some decisions. But those are a few years off, and uh, right now it is time to sort of kind of uh, Reflect on, uh, um, you know, uh, RBG, and uh, um, you know, think about those acerbic dissents that you talked about, uh, Brenda, and just for kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, just cherish a real sort of American uh, American character. Yeah, I, I just uh, the one little uh, anecdote I liked from your story, Brenda, was that um, she asked precise questions and could be convinced by an answer. Uh, during oral arguments, I, I don't. You got to think that a lot of times with oral argument that the justices walk in with their minds mostly made up and they're just kind of there for lip service, so to speak. People commented on uh, uh, Neil Cottrell was interviewed and he pointed out that she was often um, 
someone else, he was interviewed on um, MSNBC uh, right after her death, and he commented that she was always the she was the first one usually to ask a question. Yeah, that's that's it's interesting that you know that that she embraced <clears throat> that she embraced oral arguments overall. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Pharma Intelligence Podcasts. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Brenda Sandberg and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.